Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Michael, as I do every time, uh, and I know you have a podcast show and you have books and you're out there with the people in the media all the time, we would be nobody if we didn't have followers. And all those people that follow me, again, thank you during these challenging times. I know there's more people listening to podcasts than ever. And we have a great guest joining us from uh, Toronto. His name is Michael Bungay Steiner, and his book is called The Advice Trap, Be Humble, Stay Curious, and Change the Way You Lead Forever. Michael, good day to you. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you, Greg. It's nice to be here. I'm in Toronto waving at you in Encinitas, and one of my favorite places in the world, so it's nice to connect. Well, it's lovely connecting with you, and uh, as I learned more about you and I read the book, I was more and more intrigued about what you do, and I'm going to let the listeners know a little bit about you. Michael is at the forefront of shaping how organizations around the world make being coach-like an essential leadership competency. His book, The Coaching Habit, is the best-selling coaching book of the century with over 700,000 copies sold and 1,000 five-star reviews on Amazon. In 2019, Michael was named the number one thought leader in coaching and was shortlisted for the coaching award by Thinkers 50 and Oscars of Management. And um, that is uh, our good friend, Marshall Goldsmith, the Thinkers 50. And a good friend of mine, by the way, just moved to La Jolla. And Mike was also the first... Canadian Coach of the Year and has been named a global coaching guru since 2014. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He's the founder of A Box of Crayons, which we're going to mention here. It's a learning and development company that helps organizations harness the power of curiosity to drive culture. And he's a compelling keynote speaker and practical. He uses a lot of humor in what he does. And all around, he's a great guy. You can learn more about him at mbs.works. It's a great place to go. We're also going to give a link, Michael, to your Box of Crayons website, which is boxofcrayons.com and also boxofcrayons.biz. Is that correct? Both Actually, just the .com. The, the, the .biz is a, a bit historical. So if, they just, if people want to check out the organizational offering, then boxofcrayons.com is the place to go. Great. Well, you have certainly been someone in the coaching industry that has upended it and made it better. And I think the best way for our listeners to get some kind of context here, Michael, is that you've written several books before this one. And when I was cruising um, Amazon, I looked at it and I go back to your work of 2009, which was Get Unstuck and Get Going. And then do more great work, stop the busy work Mm -hmm. and start the work that matters. And then the coaching habit, which was your big, big seller, say less, ask more and change the way you lead forever. And now this book, it's called The Advice Trap. Um, And in the process, been a quite a journey for you. And that's my question here. Um, You, you know, you got to give some context to the listeners about a box of crayons because your mission, right. as you write in the books, was to democratize coaching. Can right. you tell our listeners about your mission and the focus sure. of this new book, The Advice Trap, just to put some context around this? Yeah. So I first heard about coaching um, when I was living in England. 
Um, so this was in the um, kind of mid 90s, mid late 90s. And I was like, ah, this sounds interesting, but it also sounds Californian. <laughs> and of course, if you're living in England, you're like, oh, you've got to be a bit skeptical about everything. But it tapped into something that I'd become aware of as a younger man. You know, when I was a teenager and uh, in my early 20s, I would spend a lot of time talking to my friends and I found that I was really good at listening to people. But I didn't know what I was doing. And it took me down a path where I actually did some training in telephone crisis counseling, you know, kind of youth suicide hotlines and the like. And that was my first grounding in uh, what it means to have a conversation where you're, where you're willing to go a little deeper <laughs> and you, in fact, come with an assumption that perhaps there's a deeper conversation to be had here. But I didn't really know what to do with it. But in London, the rise of coaching, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I should keep an eye out for that. And then when I moved to the States, I moved and lived in Boston for a while. I did my coach training. I went to the Coach Training Institute. And I went, this is great. I'm in. I'm in pretty early. I'm going to build a coaching practice. I'm going to love this. And I did. I built a coaching practice. I had you know, 20 or 30 clients. And annoyingly, I found that I didn't love being a coach. I love the concept of coaching. I love the technology. I love the impact of coaching. But the day-to-day -day business of being a coach and running a coaching business just didn't seem to play to my strengths. And what's more, when I went to uh, you know attend ICF conferences and the like, I just noticed that it felt, and this isn't language I'd have used at the time, but it's language we have now. It just felt a bit privileged. You know, it felt quite white, quite middle class, <laughs> quite uh, non-diverse, and slightly smug, <laughs> slightly kind of pleased at how advanced and sophisticated and moral and involved we were compared to everybody else. I'd agree. I, I, you know, you had a similar journey to me because I went to University of Santa Monica, I got a degree in spiritual psychology, went out yeah. and did some coaching. And I, I did not like the element of coaching. So yeah. I, I concur with you and I'd love to hear the rest of this story. Well, it was, it was, it was annoying because I was like, oh, this is perfect. This is what, this is what it's all been leading up to at this moment. I'm like, oh, apparently not. And I wrote my first book. In fact, Get Unstuck and Get Going, the first edition of that came out, gosh, 2005, so 15 years ago now, which is ridiculous. Um, and I had this great moment. And the great moment was I sent the book to one of my heroes, a, a writer called Peter Block, who kind of writes about organizational change and personal accountability and community now. And he wrote, he wrote a blurb for the book, which was just thrilling for me. And he said in the book, Look, this book says that coaching is not a profession. It's a way of being with each other. And quite frankly, <clears throat> that's an even nicer way of putting it than, <clears throat> excuse me, of than democratizing coaching. It's like coaching is a way of being with each other. And I read that and I just went, that, that I love. I love this idea that if we can find a way to stop having coaching feel like it's a mystery or it's a privilege, or it's a black box, or it's kind of too weirdly touchy-feely and you can only do it um, if you're an HR person or a people person. But if you actually said, look, 
coaching is a way of showing and be up and being with each other, what would shift in the world? So, in fact, a lot of the work I do and the way what I write about in my books are all kind of different angles to try and make the power of coaching and the power of curiosity feel more accessible to more people. So if you go all the way back to get unstuck, oh, sorry, go for it. No, and that being said, Michael, I think, you know, look, uh, Carl Rogers, one of the great psychologists, used to always say, you know, the Peter, that the answers are within inside you. The the key is the questions. And that Mm -hmm. book that you wrote was really filled with questions is what I had read. And I think the important element here is that no psychologist, no coach, nobody can tell you what to do. And that's what I love about you. You're actually created a process here. And you mentioned that there's two reasons our advice does not work. I love that. Um, And, you know, when you ask somebody for advice, and I saw you you lean your head to the side, pretending like you were listening, you said, (laughs) you're solving the wrong problem. And mm-hmm. you're proposing a mediocre, mediocre Medi- solution. Yeah. How would you reframe the situation for our listening audience around these two reasons that you say advice doesn't work? Yeah, well, the first thing I do to reframe this is just to say, look, sometimes advice does work. Like it, it, it would be kind of naive really to say, hey, you should never give anybody advice ever. Because, you know, what, what is this podcast if not some form of an advice <laughs> delivery system? So the, the problem isn't with advice. Advice has its place. It can be entirely appropriate. Giving somebody direction, offering solutions, having ideas, that's part of the currency of civilization. So let's not write off advice. What I want to challenge and push and provoke people on a little is this whole idea or this whole insight that a lot of us are wired to leap in and give advice. We have giving advice as our default solution. And that's the pattern that we're looking to break. Because what happens with many of us much of the time is as soon as somebody starts talking and starts going, hey, here's the thing, (laughs) even though we don't really know the person across the table from us, and even though we don't know who they're talking about, and even though we don't really know the context, and we probably certainly don't know the you know the technical specifications of what the issue is. You know, after ten seconds, we're like, "I've got an idea. I need to tell you what it is." It's ridiculous when you think about it, how comfortable and confident we are in the quality of our advice when we know so little most of the time. And you yeah, just, I, I agree. There's one last thing: you need to you, if you just spend. 10 minutes reading up about cognitive biases, you immediately understand that we are wired to be deluded about the quality of our advice. Yeah. And you, this is a good one. You cite Liz Wiseman and she states Mm. that intellectual curiosity, asking questions and being more coach-like was the characteristic that most distinguished leaders who best created impact referred to as the multiplier so a leader yeah. from so anyone who uses that you then state that when advice is the dominant management mode the damage is felt in four places now right. what are those four places and what kind of damage is felt i think that'd be great for any leaders that are listening today yeah 
Well, the place I'd go with that is just to, to realize the impact of the default response to giving advice. It, it, first of all, it impacts the person you're giving advice to because if your default action is to keep telling them what to do, having the answers, providing them the solutions, you're, you're giving them a very key message, which is you're, you're not good enough to figure this out yourself. That's not your job. Your job is to come to me for the answers because you haven't got it. So it is a disempowering act for that person because they're just getting the message, you know, don't step up, don't fulfill your potential, <laughs> don't try new things, don't think, just follow my actions. So that's one point of damage. There's a second point of damage, which is you. You are exhausted and frustrated and annoyed and overwhelmed because you're, you've taken on the responsibility to not only try and solve your own problems, which are plentiful, <laughs> you've got enough on your plate already, but also to realize that um, you, you know you, you're you're in that kind of rescuer mode, which is exhausting. So there's damage there as well, which is like not only do you have that weight of responsibility, I need to have the answers, I need to save the person, but you potentially become a bottleneck for your organization. Then there's another area of damage, and we've kind of alluded to this as well, which is all right, you're wasting time and effort for uh, for the, your team, let's call it, because you're probably trying to solve the wrong problem because you've assumed that the first challenge is the real challenge and quite frankly, it almost never is. And then you're offering up your, as we said before, your slightly crappy advice to solve the wrong problem. So that's a point of damage. And then, of course, there's just the accumulation of those three things to your to your organization, which is like, okay, so now your organization has an exhausted leader who's a bottleneck trying to motivate disempowered people while offering slightly poor solutions to solve problems that aren't really the real problems. If your organization is looking at that equation, it goes, well, I mean, we're doing okay, but we could be doing so much better if we had empowered people using their best selves to solve the real problems with their best solutions, supported and encouraged and coached by their leaders. That's the, that's the two different worlds that are in front of us. It It is so. It's a slippery slope. And I think when you start with the framework that you've created for people here, it truly is a way for them to improve. And instead of them always being the coaching and be reliant upon to empower the other people to do the same thing, right? And you, exactly. you, you have two models in your book about easy change and hard change. Um, can right. you inform our listeners about the difference and how to change what we call our operating system? Mm. David Allen. David Allen was one of the greatest that I. He and I were great friends. I started with David Allen getting things done before any before he book. became popular. But the point yeah. he used to say was that our operating systems were broken, right? Yeah. And I and I love that. And I'd love for you to inform our listeners about the easy change and the hard change. Sure. You know, this is the thing that I worked hardest on in this book. And this was actually the thing that motivated the book. Because, you know, the coaching habit had been this huge success. I mean, really a surprising success. Selling three quarters of a million copies. It's, that's a 
that's a that's a large number of copies of books being sold, particularly for a book that was self-published. So I was surprised and delighted and thrilled about the success of that book. And part of why it sold is that it worked. So lots of people wrote to me going, hey, you give me seven questions in the coaching habit. I start using them. It actually improves the way I show up with my team, with my family, with my kids, whatever it might be. And at the same time, there were a number of people who were like, look, Michael, your book is fine. I like it well enough. But if I'm honest, I haven't changed my behavior. I'm still showing up and giving advice. And even though in theory, I get the power of coaching, in practice, I feel a bit stuck around that. I was like, okay, that's really interesting. Why is it so hard to pull off what sounds like it's relatively straightforward? Because remember, the definition I'm giving around coaching is simply this. Can you stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? So that, that, that doesn't sound too difficult. I'm like, I'm not trying to say build a rocket and go to the moon. I'm saying, can you just stay curious a little bit longer? And yet for lots of us, that proves to be pretty tricky. And so that's what took me into the world of what I have re kind of labeled easy change versus hard change. So easy change. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Greg, go yeah. ahead. I was going to say, I mean, I, I get that so much because the, the key is awareness. And I think what your book did, Michael, is it created awareness of what people do that they don't, it's like, a, um, it's like an auto responder. You're on autopilot, right? <laughs> yeah. This just happens. I think it's built into people to want to do that. They want to provide some advice and to actually stay curious just a little bit longer takes a huge um, shift toward listening deeply. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of people have not learned how to listen deeply. Right. But so finish well, up with, your, with yeah. your, your easy and hard change. <laughs> sure, because this is exactly what you're pointing to. Easy change we're good at. That's why it's called easy change. It's any time you've come across a new thing, and you've got the hang of it fast enough. You know, you kind of, okay, I have to learn a new phone or I have to set up a new piece of equipment or I have to take a new route to work or I have to learn how to work from home or whatever it might be. You're like, okay, well, I'm just going to watch some videos and listen to a podcast and read a book and learn kind of what needs to be done. And then I'm going to start doing it. And then over time, you go from being not that good at it to being pretty good at it. And before you know it, you're like, okay, I've got it. I've sorted it out. I'm good enough. So that's easy change. You do that well enough. And the metaphor I'd offer you here is it's a little bit like downloading an app onto your phone. You know, it is a small additive act. You're adding to what you can already do. Hard, and for some people, Coaching and the coaching habit was easy change. They're like, oh, good. I've downloaded the seven questions. I got it. Now I'm using them. Now I'm getting better at them. And that's wonderful. Hard change, not surprisingly, a little more difficult. And it is about saying, okay, this is when an additive act isn't sufficient. It's what's required is a transformative act. Instead of downloading an app, it turns out you need to upgrade your operating system. And that just takes more time and it's a little trickier and it's a harder thing to take on. And for some of us, for many of us, I would say, being more coach-like, asking these questions is a hard change act. 
Because here's what's happening. You're no longer downloading and adding to current you, but you're trying to create future you. You're trying to upgrade. You're trying to level up. And what that means is that you face some choices. And you, in fact, face this choice to say, what will I say no to about how I currently act so I can say yes to a more powerful way of being and doing and showing up in this world? And this is tricky. This is hard because there's a bunch of small short-term wins that you get from how you currently act. So when so you think true. about... So when you think about, Greg, about being curious, you're like, okay, so here's what I get from having an advice monster and kind of having an advice monster unleashed in the world. I get to feel smart. I get to feel like I'm adding value. If you're kind of old like Greg and me, where like you get to feel like you've still got some, something to show in this world, so you're not done yet, you're not redundant. You know, you get to have status, you get to have control, you get to have influence and power. There's a bunch of things that come with giving advice. But you know, in the book, we talk about prizes and punishments. Part of what the book encourages you to do is to see the prizes and see often how they're short-term and then weigh up the punishments, which is the disempowered people, the bottlenecking, the weight of responsibility of having to have all the answers, the impossibility of going, I need to be able to rescue everybody and protect them and never, you know, make sure nobody ever stumbles or finds it difficult or finds it hard. You know, I've got to give up a little bit of control so that I can invite others in to take control and empower them. And that's what we start wrestling with when we get into this concept of hard change. Well, it is so apparent today as people are dealing with uh, the coronavirus uh, yeah. and their organizations to actually be asking these hard questions. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of, um, what do you want to call it, rejiggering, I'm just going to say, <laughs> when people come <laughs> to back to work, right? Yeah. And they're going to be asking new questions about their business, how they operate their business, how prepared they might be, how unprepared they were how other things they could do to uh, mitigate uh, some of the challenges. So here's the thing. Yeah. You've distilled how to give advice down into asking seven essential questions. And you had a little video on your website with one of your colleagues in your office. And, That's right. Um, and the eight ways to ask a question well. What are the seven questions? What are the eight ways to ask a better question? Yeah, let me let me let me tease people with some of some of the answers there. Otherwise, it'll be too much of a kind of a dump, and people will feel a bit overwhelmed. Okay, um, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you a couple of my favorite questions out of that list of seven. Um, and for the people, some people who are listening may know my work, and thank you if you do. I'm I'm guessing a whole bunch don't know my work, never heard of me before, and so hello to you. If I was to say, look, if you're going to start somewhere, where would you start? Let me give you a couple of questions. The first is a really powerful question to start almost any conversation. Because if you buy into the fact that coaching is an everyday act, then you have to buy into the fact that it has to happen pretty quickly. Nobody has time for what lots of us think of when we say coaching, which is like a sit down and have an hour long, deep and meaningful conversation. It's like, no, no, it's got to be fast. It's just got to be about something that matters. So the kickstart question, which is the first question that's in the book, 
It's simply what's on your mind. What's on your mind? And what's on your mind is a question that is both open and inviting, but it also says, don't tell me everything. Don't tell me anything. Tell me what you're excited about or you're worried about or you're anxious about. So what I find is, um, you know, if, you, if you're in a formal relationship with somebody, like a coaching relationship, that's a good way to start. Um, I've reinvented all of my one-to-ones with the people I lead in my, my small teams. So we don't have a, okay, let's go through the agenda. <laughs> I go, great, I know you've got a lot on your plate. What's on your mind? What would be most useful for you in this comp call? And we immediately get into a, a richer, faster conversation. So that's one of the questions. You can pair that up with another question. So I call these the bookend combination which is a really good way to finish almost any conversation. Because one of the things that you, one of the roles that you can adapt or adopt, if you're a parent or a, a, a manager or a leader or an individual contributor or a human being, is to be that of a teacher. And the learning question, which I think is a really powerful way to finish off many, many conversations, is simply this, what was most useful or most valuable here for you? What was most useful or most valuable here for you? And what that question invites is a moment of reflection. Mm-hmm. Because here's what, here's what you hope has happened in the conversation with you. You hope they've heard what you've said and they've gone, oh, Greg is brilliant. I mean, look at that. That's a gold dust what he's just given me. It's amazing. But actually most of the time they haven't quite seen the gloriousness of your wisdom. And actually, ironically, most of the time, what you think is your best stuff actually may not even be that useful for them. So when you say, hey, what was most useful or most valuable here for you? That you're asking them to make the connection, them to have the aha moment, and that's helpful for them because they're now making that cognitive connections that they may not otherwise have made. But it's also helpful for you because what you get in that moment is feedback. You get told that this is the thing that made the difference. So you're like, okay, next time I can do more of that or and less of the other stuff to make these conversations even more powerful. Well, it's more inclusive um, the way mm-hmm. that you're approaching it. In other words, to, to get the inclusion of somebody uh, and to empower them is so much more rewarding than to tell. Right. You know, yeah. telling is not telling is not selling, they say in the sales business. And that's usually right. what happens. And, you know, you speak about um, Joshua Ninsky. I think that's how you'd say it. The chess prodigy in his book, The Art yeah. of Learning. And he talked about the concept called making smaller circles and that the, re- mm-hmm. that the refinement, is the art of making smaller circles and condensing the power of the technique. Well, I can get it. If I draw smaller and smaller circles on a paper, I understand that's bringing things closer together. But can you speak about making smaller circles as it relates to our advice monster? Yeah, you know, it's coaching or being more coach-like is simple but difficult. It's the power of being present to the other person, seeing them as a human, kind of meeting them kind of wholeheartedly, perhaps is a way of putting it, which is like, I'm here, I'm, I'm, I, I'm seeing the best of you, the best in you, I want the best for you. 
And it's to, I think, to, I, the, the word I have in my head, Greg, is, is elegant. It's like, how do you sustain an elegant conversation with this person? Mm-hmm. And elegant for me means just the right amount of stuff. <laughs> and so often if you're on that conversation, you are overfilling the conversation. There's too much lead up. <laughs> there are too many words. There are too many opinions. There's too much advice. There's too much rescuing. There's just too much. <laughs> and that that discipline of practice, because this guy um, is a, his book is amazing because he was a chess prodigy, chess maestro, a grandmaster, and then he stopped doing that and took up martial arts and became a world champion at some form of martial arts. And what he says and what he teaches is, I know how to practice. I know how to practice well. And if part of what we're doing here is trying to practice this muscle of curiosity, building that capacity, it's like, how do you intensify that willingness to be curious and stay curious, ask a great question, stay present, listen to the answer, ask and what else as a way of deepening the inquiry, ask and what else as a way of deepening the inquiry again. I think that discipline is how you find elegance and power and mastery in being more coach-like. Yeah, and it it reminds me of uh, some of the concepts that are used in organizational psychology, like Peter Block. You know, um, if you look at equilibrium, right, and Mm -hmm. you look at molecules and atoms, or you look at anything in our environment, it seeks to seek this equilibrium. And I think Mm -hmm. what you're attempting to do is create the equilibrium within how we ask questions, how we listen, and how we actually get into the DNA of the other person. And I kind of want to wrap up this interview with a quote that's in your book. It's actually, you have some pages that have big quotes on them. And it said, the best advice comes from people who don't give advice. Matthew McConaughey. (laughs) How, How would you like to reframe the whole concept of providing advice to our listeners so that their listening and advice giving skills become more informed and better. Well, I would lay down a challenge that is difficult, but doesn't sound too difficult, which is if you're willing to delay the piece of advice you have for two minutes, you know, I'm not asking for an hour or a month or a week or anything, just two minutes. And in a conversation, go, can I go 120 seconds longer before I offer up this piece of advice? I think you might be surprised in where the conversation gets to and how far it goes and how much they already know <laughs> and how different the challenge is and how slightly off your advice would have been. So I would say to people, don't make this a big thing but make this a daily thing and make this a discipline thing to say, look, just slow down the rush to action and advice giving. Slow it down by two minutes. It's the 120-second challenge. <laughs> That's it. And if you can do that, then you'll find a way that your your relationships with people changes and evolves. That is some very, very sound advice and a great way to wrap up our interview because 
I believe uh, that those moments of hesitation, sometimes you react, right? They used to say this when you get in an argument, right? If yeah. you could just calm the emotions, right? And right. wait for the wave of the reaction to occur, you're not going to say something you hope you wouldn't have said, right? Exactly. And frequently that happens a lot when people, they allow the emotions to take over. And the key is to keep the emotion in check and to keep your ego in check. Because uh, mm-hmm. the ego also wants to be heard. It's like, ah, great, my monster's here. Exactly. I'm going to come out and give you this advice. So this was great advice, Michael. Uh, and we've been on with Michael Van Gay Stainer, Stoner. Um, and it's the advice trap. Be humble, stay curious, and change the way you lead forever. And I want to direct our listeners to the MBS Works. That's mbs.works uh, that you can go to.com and you can log in. There you're going to see, you can uh, download intro here. You can actually see some videos. Um, you can learn more about Michael speaking. And if you're in the corporate side of things, right, Michael, they can go to mm-hmm. boxofcrayons.com. And there yeah. you'll see the coaching programs. Uh, you'll see some case studies. He's got lots of resources. You can learn ways that you can get involved with that and see where actually Michael is applying it. I actually watched a few of the uh, videos there as well. And so for That's all great. of my Thank listeners, you. this is a great opportunity to get involved with the coaching habit um, and the advice trap and to learn more about Michael. Is there anything else that you'd like to say, Michael, today about you know, uh, having people reach out to you or wanting to reach you or sure. get the book. Look, I, I'd, say, I'd say, look, two, two additional things to what Greg said. The first is this. If you go to mbs.works and you'll see the Advice Trap book there, if you click on that, it'll take you to a page where you can actually do a quick questionnaire to figure out which of the three different types of advice monsters is strongest in you. So tell it, save it, and control it. We didn't really talk about it today, but if you're curious to know what advice monster you've got living inside you, then there's a free questionnaire at theadvicetrap.com. And also, just a couple of weeks ago, I had a TEDx talk launched. It's called How to Tame Your Advice Monster. So if you Google that plus TEDx, you'll see, I think it's a 14-minute talk from me around getting into taming your advice monster. So that might be something you'd enjoy as well. Those are both great resources, and at our blog, we'll put links to those as well. So we'll have links to the TEDx talk. We'll have links to for you all to the Box of Crayons and uh, MBS.com. Michael, pleasure having you on. I'd like to have you back on again to actually talk with you about uh, some of your other books. It was truly, you know, really engaging. I enjoyed it, and I know there's a value to the listeners here uh, who are not only working in businesses, but who are working with individuals around them that are, are looking for advice or looking for them to help them. So I really do appreciate what you've done and the, the books that you've written. Greg, thank you. The pleasure is mine.